Welcome to Bike Talk Shorts, shorter interviews and conversations with incredible people who do incredible things. Extra episodes will be dropped randomly between our weekly Wednesday episodes. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I'm kicking off Bike Talk Shorts on the Iditarod Trail with conversations from 2019 with a couple of people I talked to at the 350-mile checkpoint on the Iditarod Trail in McGrath, Alaska. I'll be starting with Katie Merchant, who was at that point the co-director of the Iditarod Trail Invitational. She's going to tell us all about the Iditarod Trail as well as the history of this race. And after that, I sat down at the checkpoint with a guy by the name of Flory Riederberger. He's a fat biker who was on his way to Nome. This was on the eve of him loading his bike and continuing west on the Iditarod Trail. He was hoping to make it the next 150 miles to Nome. I've get a, got a bit of a story about his departure I'll share with you at the end of the show. But for now, grab a cup of chain and spoke coffee and enjoy the show, starting with Katie Merchant. My name's Katie Merchant. I was uh, born and raised in Bavaria, Germany, and I moved to Alaska in 2002, right at the beginning of fat baking. Very few bi- people had bikes then. I um, got involved with the Iditarod Trail Invitational Race with my... Uh, former husband then and started helping with it. Um, It has grown tremendously since then. There's fat bikes are in the thousands, they're all over the world. Uh, The event has grown tremendously as well. Um, It attracts world-class athletes as well as regular people that just have this dream of seeing the Iditarod Trail and uh, traveling the Iditarod Trail under their own power. so you got, uh, I think there's four people from Iowa, uh, Steve Cannon, Steve McGuire, Mike Wallace, and Jason Jason Davis, Davis from Sioux City. Yeah, Sioux City. So he's a rookie. Um, Steve Cannon finished the 350-mile race last year. Uh, Mike Wallace I met in a training camp uh, at Jay Peterberry's camp in Idaho a couple of years ago. And then who was the other guy? Um, Steve um, Steve McGuire has a history here. Steve McGuire has a history that goes way back to 1995, to the early versions of the race. There was no fat bikes in 1995. It was regular bikes, and there was snowcat rims, and uh, definitely not the fat bikes of today. But Steve McGuire was here more than 20 years ago, and he's back. And he's cool. in the 350 um, to McGrath this year. Uh, so uh, let's talk about Steve Cannon. How is uh, how do you feel he's doing? What's what's going on with Steve in your that you know of? Steve Cannon is an interesting guy. I for the first time I rode to Nome in two thousand eight and hadn't been there since. But last year I flew to Nome, and Steve had told me after he finished in McGrath that he was going to come up to Nome. He showed up and I had a great time hanging out with Steve, um, waiting for more finishers under the Burled Arch in Nome. Um, as soon as he came in, we um, we walked out on the sea ice, which was pretty cool. He's he is very enthusiastic about this race, and he's really fascinated with Alaska. I know he spent long periods of time hanging out and training with um, a bunch of our usual racers in Fairbanks. He truly loves it. He's very passionate about it, and um, I don't think this will be his last time. I think he's somebody that we'll see out there several years, um, for more years to come. Um, he's definitely been 
uh, bitten by the Alaska bug and uh, yeah, I don't think he will, won't be able to stay away from Alaska. He's, it's definitely got in his blood. He loves it and uh, he embraces it. Um, so yeah, I, I look forward to tracking him going to Nome because Nome is a whole nother deal. It's a different animal than the McGrath race. The, the McGrath, race kind of starts in McGrath for the Nome riders. Yes, because the McGrath race is our most competitive event. It's our largest field. But when you leave here, when you leave the Schneider Heinz's house, the warmth and hospitality of those people that have hosted the checkpoint here for more than 20 years, it, things get real. I mean, you you going out into the, into the unknown, and this year is the southern route. Um, it's not used by the Iron Dog snowmobile race. It's only used by Iditarod, the sled dog race, every other year. They're using the route three years in a row because it wasn't used for four years at all a while back. There was concerns it may disappear and overgrow and just get lost. It's The southern route is very special to a lot of people, to the mushers as well as our racers, because uh, it, the town or the ghost town of Iditarod is along that route. That's where the name comes from. It's uh, a, it had 10,000 people living there at one time during the gold rush around 1900. So a lot of people are really keen on doing the southern route, but I would say it's even more desolate than the northern route, and it's only used during Iditarod. Um, otherwise, there's just no traffic on that route at all. And it's also known for you know, soft trails and headwinds going up on the Yukon River, so more Often than not, you, you're dealing with headwinds and you're dealing in with drifted in trail for 120 miles up the Yukon River. Wow. There's, there's only one checkpoint in between on that section of Yukon River, and that's Eagle Island. Iditarod sets up a checkpoint there, uh, but we don't furnish a checkpoint, so there is people there in case of an emergency at a place called Eagle Island um, along the Yukon River. But that's wow. about it. So I really think that when you leave Ofer, that's that's when it's time for our gut check. And okay, I'm really doing this. I'm really heading out there into into the unknown. Um, the Iditarod Trail Invitational races are very. It's a very special place. Uh, the Iditarod Trail is a historic place. Also, um, it's an overland journey that you can only do in the winter time when the trail actually exists. It doesn't exist in the summertime, there is no trail. There is sections of the trail, but in its entirety, it does not exist in the summertime. It's uh, marshy, marshy areas, it's lakes and frozen rivers. So the route doesn't actually exist in the summertime. And it also doesn't exist in the wintertime until someone puts in a route with snowmobiles and um, packing down the snow, clearing brush and trees and building ice bridges in the Dalsal Gorge. Um, the Iditarod um, trail breakers, the Iditarod crew does a lot of the work in the, in the Dalsal Gorge. When I refer to Iditarod, I always talk about the dog race. That's the Iditarod. But um, also the, the, the ta ghost town of Iditarod carries the same name. And um, there was 10,000 people at one time, but it's it's pretty much a ghost town with a few cabins today. It's, it's a checkpoint on, on the southern route. 
which they're going through this year. Which they're going through this year. They're going on the southern route. Um, what, uh, as a, you've completed this how many times? Yourself? Three times. Three times on bike? Mm-hmm. All I, on bike? Yep. Yeah, I, um, fat biking wasn't definitely not as advanced as it is today with so many bike and rim and tire choices and all the bike packing gear in 2005 there was not a lot of options for bikes uh, when I rode to McGrath the first year I actually had a standard mountain bike with uh, Simon's 44 millimeter snowcat rims I rode a standard specialized bike to McGrath in 2005 huh, and those tires fit in that frame yeah, it was a standard mountain bike. I didn't get a fat bike uh, until the next year. In 2006, it was a very snowy year, and I walked all the way from Pantella to here. I walked 150 miles. Whoa. <laughs> What's it mean for somebody to be on this trail and get all the way to Nome? Like, where does that sit in your, <clears throat> in your heart? All the way to Nome? Yeah, it's it's really hard because it's the 350 is um, much more supported. We have checkpoints and they have two drop bags. Uh, after they leave McGrath, it turns into a real adventure. It's it turns into an, a winter expedition more or less. Um, there's an, another drop bag in Iditarod, or in Cripple on the northern route, and then there's the villages that have very basic services. There's no. There's a few places that have a bed and breakfast, but most places there's a school and a post office. Those are the places that the, the um, athletes try to find. It's the, the post office, they pick up a package, they mail them ahead of time, and then the school is the place to find a shelter. And we work with the principals and racers sleep in the schools, mostly in the gym or wherever they have space for them. There's one restaurant between here and Nome that is a must stop. Tell <laughs> there, me about that. Yeah, there's one restaurant, Peace on Earth Pizza in Unalakleet. Uh, it's definitely a favorite with, with the racers to get to Unalakleet to have pizza there. Do they hang out there for a while? I mean, is it a, a gathering point for them? Unalakleet means where the east wind blows. And so if the weather is good, you want to get out of there. You want to cover some ground because if the weather gets bad, yeah, it it can be really hard. The trails get drifted in a lot when the wind blows, and the wind blows a lot on the coast. So if the weather is good when you get to Unalakleet, you don't want to dilly dally around. You want to get keep moving. Yeah, what's if you that get last? Caught in that wind, then your progress may really slow down because the trails are going to get drifted in. What's and I heard that the weather has been really bad in Nome so far on the coast. It's been stormy and snowy, and it's been blowing up there on the coast. Is there a lot of uh, snow, snow machine traffic between the villages up there that even after snow, the trail will get broken back in or, <clears throat> or no? There is, and that, that's what's so significant about this section between Ofer, Shagaluk, and Vigrailing, and up to Caltag. There is no inter-village traffic on that section. There is traffic between Grailing, Shagaluk, and Anvik, and if you look on the map, those villages are all close together but there's no traffic going up the Yukon River to Caltag. They have no reason to go up there. It's just too far. Snow machine gas is expensive. They have no reason to travel all the way up to Caltag. So there is inter-village traffic between Shagaluk, Anvik, and Grayling, but not up the Yukon to Caltag. Uh, and so by the time you get to Caltag, there is traffic over the Caltag portage to the coast, to Unalakleet. And then up on the Bering Sea coast, 
you know, people are out hunting and traveling. So there is more traffic once you get up to the coast between Unalakleet and Nome. Uh, and there's an infamous section, I don't know, I want to say 20 miles from Nome, but it might be further than the that. The blowholes. The blowholes. Yeah. Talk about the blowholes. Yeah, I got, a, I got the experience, the blowholes in 2008 when I rode to Nome. Um, we were held up at a cabin and it literally looks like a white wall that goes up. And we were in constant ground blizzards. You could look straight up and you could see the moon and the stars, but down on the ground, it was a ground blizzard. And it's these winds that come off those coastal mountains and just in certain sections, you can walk in and out of that wind and it's very strong winds, but they, they're blowing out to, to the sea, they're blowing offshore. And they can knock you over. They can, they can create really cold wind chills. Um, I, I know that uh, in years past, even dog teams have stalled out in those winds. Been knocked over by them. I think it was Jeff King that got tangled up at a piece of driftwood with his team a few years ago. Yeah. And um, I think other mushers then passed him, and they didn't even know that he was out of the race because at some point he was ahead of them. And I believe that was between safety and no. Yeah. It was on that last section, 22 miles from safety to Nome. Yeah. Um, yep. It was one of those blowholes. And it's really disorienting, uh, whether it's in the daytime or at night. It's really disorienting when there's so much uh, wind and drifting snow. Uh, it, it actually is hard to even pick up the markers. Once the Iditarod trail breakers go through and they're coming to this town on Monday night, they usually stay ahead of the mushers by about 24 hours, 12 to 24 hours. They also set markers every 50 feet. They're reflective, orange, wouldn't la last, so they are reflective at night and they have an orange, uh, bright orange color on them in the daytime. But the conditions can get, get bad enough you can't see marker to marker on the coast. Wow. Because it can be blow it's blowing so hard. Just keep the wind on your right. <laughs> And uh, some years there's a lot of snow on the coast. We've had snowless years. When there's no snow, then there's no snow to blow around. Um, I know there was a year it was mostly ice. It was uh, very little snow on the coast. Huh. So what's the feeling as you enter Nome? Mm, it's almost a sad moment because it's over. <laughs> the journey is over and you're there. Huh. It's, it, I don't think it's about getting there. It's about being on the trail. It's, for a lot of people, it's being out there. It's almost like a sad ending that it's that you're finished because the journey is you're done. You're there. Is there some post-race depression? <laughs> yeah, some people call it the post-race depression. Yeah, it's it's sad because it's. I think people go out there to be on the trail. It's life in its simplest form. Somebody mentioned that it's all you have to worry about is warmth, finding shelter, eating, drinking, and moving forward. And it's very simple. It, it's none of the distractions of our everyday life with the phone ringing constantly, your phone dinging with messages, people calling you, people expecting you, going to meetings, a lot of chatter, you know, people telling you things. Um, so it's, it's very simple. It's just you and uh, Mother Nature and the very basic needs of shelter, warmth, food, and water. Huh. <laughs> um. Any final comments? Um, this is my 17th year 
being involved with the race, either at doing it, participating. Um, I've been at checkpoints and also been race director for a few years, over 10 years now. I, it's, it's always exciting. There's always new things for me to figure out as well, uh, as it is for racers. I think because Alaska is very remote and it's very extreme and things can go wrong, but there's also ways to fix it. And we're always looking for solutions. And you just have to know there's always solutions, whether you're a race director or a racer. And it is never a routine. We all need our systems on how to do things and systems are really good, but you really have to be able to think outside the box. And because it is remote, because it's extreme temperatures or we've also seen rain, we've seen a lot of ice, we've seen no snow in some years, it's never the same. And so every year there's new logistical uh, challenges, but I, I, I just know we can always figure it out. There's always a solution. Uh, in fact, my first year, we didn't even go this route. We had to go to Ninana and we, we started in a very different place. We used the original serum run route out of Ninana to Nome. And it was the first year I did a rod switch to Fairbanks because oh. the trail was actually impossible. The Happy River was open and that was an oh. obstacle that could not be crossed by dogs or by human power. It was just a, a open water that couldn't be crossed. So there's there's always a solution. Is the Happy River really happy? <laughs> um, well, the famous Happy River Steps, it's a very scenic area, but it's also very challenging. It, I've heard a lot of stories, it's steep downs and really steep, you know, people trying to figure how to get their bike up these really steep hills and how to get down, they slide down on their butt on the Happy River Steps. Um, I think there's a lot of stories, Happy River Steps and the Happy River. Yeah. Um, you really have to see it and you have to be out there to, um, to understand it because I try to explain to people how to get down the steps and up the steps, but um, you just have to see it. Yeah. I don't know if it's a happy place, but it's, it's definitely a, a place with many stories to tell. For sure. Thank you. That was great. We appreciate your uh, time. Uh, my name is Florian Reiterberger. I'm from Bavaria, Germany. Uh, did you come here just for this race? Yeah. Very cool. What? Why? Why? What? What is it? What's the draw of the Iditarod? Why not? <laughs> no. So uh, I started with. Arctic races in 2016 at the Yukon Arctic Ultra and yeah it was it was amazing there and then Kati called me and then um, was talking to each other and said she means hey I have to come to Alaska and they said okay why not yeah it sounds sounds beautiful yeah and it is <laughs> you found it beautiful it's beautiful yes yeah what are uh, some of the highlights of your ride so far uh, there are definitely a lot of highlights so one of the most is definitely the area around Rome. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful when you ride down from from Rainy Pass, so you have a great trail for ride, you can go really, really fast. And then you have this amazing view when you when you come to the lake. So this this is something we'll really remember for a long, long time. Yeah. And one of the other Big thing is definitely the other athletes. So it's it's separate to to other events because people who are doing Arctic Arctic Ultra races or I do rod races like that. So they are 
totally different to other sport people. So they are not only got the winning in their mind, it's, it's this working together, it's just growing together, it's just helping each other. And that's the big difference. Yeah, this is what I like. Is um, survival a key as opposed to place you finish? Definitely yes. Yeah. Definitely yes. Um, have you seen the Northern Lights? Oh yeah, yeah, every night. Every night? Every night, yeah. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, so, you were in McGrath. Yeah. How do you view what lies ahead? Well, uh, so for tomorrow, I think I'll do a, a one day off. Just relax my body a little bit. And yeah, then we will see how, what comes and comes. <laughs> so, uh, expect the unexpected. Are you nervous about the next section? Um, just a little bit, yeah, just well, a little bit, because it's different to the ITI to my three mile three hundred and fifty. It's definitely different, but uh, yeah, this is what it's all about. How yeah. do you feel it's different? In what way? Yeah, in what way? Because uh, there is no no support anymore. There are no no real checkpoints and that, stuff like that. So you're definitely on your own. You have a hundred of miles where you see nobody, no buildings, nothing like that. So. Yeah, we will see. We will see. Yeah, so this it makes it a little bit nervous, but uh, a positive nervous. Uh, in Germany, do you are you familiar with the Iditarod sled dog? Sled dog. Iditarod sled. The dogs. <laughs> <laughs> the dog race. Are you familiar with the dog race over there? Uh, I heard about it, but uh, I'm not interested in, in sled dog races, so I can't say a word about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, are you like? Is there some excitement for when the dogs start coming through? I'm sorry, what, what do you mean? Are, is there some excitement for when the dogs start coming through? What, what do you mean excitement? Well, are you excited to see the dogs when they... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it will be. It's, it's, it's really interesting so to see how the musher workings with the dogs. So, yeah, I saw them first time ever in my life at the, at, at the Yukon Territory and it's, it's impressing me. So you have, I don't know, 12, 14 dogs, something like that on your sled and the marshal gives the order and all the dogs is doing that it's 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 cool i like it yeah yeah it's i mean it's definitely yeah. an iconic race yeah um and uh it's i don't know it's got to be just cool to be sharing yeah. the trail with them yeah it's and great it's great so i hope to meet some of those guys yeah i bet you'll have the opportunity yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh we'll, we'll see you on down the road i'm gonna try and get to unicolit Pardon? I'm going to try to get to Unakalit yeah. on the coast. Okay. Um, I don't know my timing there, so maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, hope so. Or maybe I'll see you in Nome. It will be better. But I will, uh, <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, good luck in the next section. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed learning a bit more about life on the Iditarod Trail. We've got much more to come as we continue to celebrate the Iditarod this March. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you want to see what life on the trail is like, check out our films, both 1,000 Miles to Nome and Down the Kuskokwim, which are both available now on the Bike Talk with Dave YouTube channel. Check them out and enjoy. So that story I was talking about, Flory. After my conversation with him in McGrath, I asked him what time he was going to be leaving. I'd like to set up my camera and catch him riding out on McGrath into the great unknown. Of course, he said he would be leaving 
somewhere between 4 and 6 a.m. So I got up at 3, trudged my camera gear across the Kuskokwim River, climbed up a steep riverbank, and got all set up. It will be a great shot of his headlights dropping into the river out of the village, crossing over the river, and then struggling as he pushed his loaded bike up the steep riverbank. Now keep in mind it's about 20 degrees below zero. So I get set up and I wait and I wait and I wait. One hour, two hours, three hours. Finally, I see his light bouncing through town. Then it ducks behind some trees and heads off in a completely different direction. I could barely see as his little dot of light meandered off into the woods, probably a mile from where I was. I totally missed the shot. Funny thing is, the day before I had sent off Steve Cannon up the trail where I was standing. What I didn't know after filming Steve as he rode off into the woods was that he had realized he was on the wrong trail. He turned around and dropped back onto the river and followed a snowmobile trail to the correct trail. Needless to say, needless to say, I went back to my room and went to bed. Now, Flory did make it out of McGrath and he made it all the way up to the next town, Takatna, where bike problems forced him to turn back around to McGrath where he had to drop out of the race. So it was good to meet him and I appreciated his time on the couch. Now, thanks for tuning in to Bike Talk Shorts. I would love it if you would rate, review, wherever you listen. And please feel free to share it with your friends. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com or just keep it simple and hit me up on Venmo at David-Mabel. If you do, I'll be happy to send you a Bike Talk with Dave sticker. There's a link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thanks also to BikeIowa.com for being the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. BikeIowa.com is where you can find out what's going on and where to go. Bike month is only 60 days away. It's never too early to start planning. One of the events that you might find on BikeIowa.com is the Driftless 100, a scenic gravel race through the wooded hills of Northeast Iowa on April 29th. It starts in the town of Elkader. I'll be there with my friends at the Iowa Gravel Gang. You can join us by signing up today. Click the link on bikeiowa.com or go to driftlessgravel.com to register. I'm also excited to load our tandem up and head down to Sweetwater, Texas for the Rattlesnake Gravel Grind the last weekend in March. Looks like a great weekend full of riding, music, food, and fun. Good old West Texas hospitality. We can't wait. We hope you'll join us. Find out all about it at rattlesnakegravelgrind.bike. Now I'm going to go grab another cup of Chain and Spoke coffee, which is available now by ordering at chainandspoke.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We've got lots of fun episodes lined up, including more from the Iditarod Trail this week with Steve Cannon, and then we'll hear from Heather Poskovich as she plans to tackle another doozy of a bike ride, though a little warmer, the Race Across America. And later this winter, we're planning to talk with Matt Fippen, director of the annual bike ride across Iowa, Ragbri. And of course, sprinkled in there will be our extra episodes with news from event directors and the new Bike Talk shorts. 
So be sure and subscribe and follow Bike Talk with Dave on Instagram and Facebook so you don't miss a thing. Have a great week.